In this week's episode, I interview Elizabeth, a financial planner who got her start in the field after realizing the connection between money and mental health. After reaching what she thought was success and surviving a traumatic accident, she has been able to rebuild a vision for her life into something new. Listen in for more of her inspiring story and for her mental health and wealth tips. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, the Mental Health and Wealth Show, the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy, and I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Elizabeth Westendorf. She is a comprehensive fee-only hourly financial planner with financial planning. Her interest in personal finance started out of her own mental health journey, where she saw the intersection of mental health and financial security and addressed her own financial mistakes. She brings that nuance and compassion to her work with clients. She also writes about her own experiences and her career change to financial planning on her blog, Owning the Stars. I am so excited to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Melanie. I know this is so fantastic. We have been following each other in the blogosphere for several years now. So super excited to see everything that you've done, all the changes that you have made and super excited for you to be on the show. So I wanted to dive right in. I know you mentioned your own mental health kind of started you on this journey to money. And I'm curious kind of like, what's your story with mental health and money? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that mental health plays a role in everything, right? Like it affects all aspects of our lives. And of course that includes money. And so when I found myself out of college in a job that I loved, but I was stressed. It was, I was adulting for the first time, which was hard. Um, And as my mental health suffered, so did my finances, right? I was looking for quick fixes, for quick comforts. I ordered a whole lot of takeout. I rented an apartment that was, I rented an apartment that was too expensive for me. I adopted a second pet when I couldn't afford that, like so many things. And then as I realized, okay, this isn't going to get better. I need to fix it. As I fixed my financial mistakes, I noticed that there was a direct correlation with my mental health. And of course I was doing other things for my mental health at the same time, but the financial aspect did play a role there. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because there's such a huge and direct link between the way we feel about our lives and the way we manage our money. And a lot of people don't necessarily correlate it with mental health because like you kind of mentioned, you're doing these adulting things that are just like, oh, well, I'm doing what everyone's supposed to be doing or this is just the way things are. But we don't really question like, oh, I think I might be unhappy or I think I might be unsatisfied and I'm 
doing these things that I really can't afford or aren't really great for my future self because I'm miserable in the present. Yeah. And I think that the other aspect there is that like, there's already so much emotion wrapped up in finances, right? There's shame and guilt and fear. And so finances themselves are emotional. When you're dealing with other kind of emotional issues, mental health concerns, they compound each other. It's just not a very good situation to be in. At least that's what I found. Oh, totally. And I'm so glad that you use the word compounding because I often like to tell people, you know, like money that compounds with interest, either with debt or through investing, like you not taking care of yourself mental health wise also compounds like you skipping that workout or not drinking water or, you know, getting four hours of sleep three nights in a row, all of that compounds and little by little starts to chip away at any semblance of joy and stability. And it's super important that similar to the way we manage our money, that we manage our mental health. And, you know, like certain people say like, oh, it doesn't matter if you just save $5 here or there, you know, whatever. I'm definitely, this isn't a latte discussion, by the way. Like I definitely want people to buy their lattes, but just on principle, like I do understand that saving $5 here or there, saving $20 here or there can make a difference. And similarly, you know, with your mental health, like having one more glass of water a day, working out for five minutes, taking that 20 minute nap, having some time that you're not in front of a screen, even just those little moments can compound in a positive way as well. So I know you kind of talked about adulting and life and and managing money is already so stressful, especially, you know, if you have previous mental health concerns. I know that you experienced an incredibly um, traumatic and unexpected event when you were in college. You were actually hit by a truck. I know a lot of people joke about that, like, oh my God, I'm so tired. I feel like I got hit by a truck when it's like, this is no laughing matter. You actually were. And I can't imagine what that was like. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. And secondly, I'm so glad that you're here and you're healthy and okay. And thirdly, I'm just curious, you know, how has something of that nature that is kind of out of your control, that's obviously very traumatic, that has a lasting impact, how did that affect the way that you see mental health and wealth after that event? Yeah, so um, I hear the phrase a lot, you know, I feel like I've been hit by a truck. And I promise you, you don't. (laughs) You don't feel that way unless it's actually happened to you. Um, I was walking back to my dorm, second day of classes, spring semester. And as I was crossing the street, a grocery delivery truck hit me, came out of nowhere. I went flying. I am thankfully great now. Like I'm doing really well, but it was a solid two years of recovery. Um, The accident shattered my foot. I had three surgeries. I was in constant pain for over a year. And I just, there's so much wrapped up in that, obviously. But um, it was hard for me, especially as someone who um, is a bit of a type A personality. I like having control over things. I like having a path that I can follow. And I was on this path and knew where I was going. And suddenly I was pretty literally derailed. And the accident was 
horrible and horrific. And I spent several years kind of working through that trauma. But in a weird way, it also, I think, became a catalyst to put me on the path I'm on now, which I don't think I would have found without that kind of jarring from my status quo. Thank you so much for sharing that. I can't imagine what you have gone through, but I I am glad that you have found a silver lining in something now, because I think that there definitely are silver linings for a lot of things, but I also think that sometimes there aren't, or sometimes they're not readily available like right away. So it just feels like, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? So I just wanted to mention that. And then also you mentioned something about pain, which I think is so important, especially as it relates to mental health is like, nobody wants to be in in any kind of pain, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, and of course, that's going to affect your quality of life and your happiness. Like when you said that, I was just thinking like, oh, I kind of have a headache right now and it's bothering me and I want to just take some Advil and do nothing the rest of the day. And it's like, this is because of a slight headache. I can't imagine being in pain like that and just having to manage day to day and feeling like everything's okay and how that would affect you. Yeah. And I, just to go back quickly to the the silver lining aspect, I, I like to be clear that if I could pick, I would 100% choose not to be hit by a truck. It's more that now that I'm almost, no, I am almost 10 years out from the accident now. Um, it'll be 10 years next year. Now that I'm 10 years out and I can look back, I see the role it played in my trajectory. So all things equal, I leave out the truck part, but I can recognize that it's part of my story now. And you're right, the the pain was was hard and and not just the physical pain. Obviously, that's we're here to talk about the mental health aspect. Um mm-hmm. the emotional pain, that emotional trauma was in some ways a whole lot worse in part because people couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. Right? Once I had finished the second surgery, I didn't have crutches, I didn't have a cast or a wheelchair or a knee walker, because I tried all of them, there was no physical indication that I was in this kind of pain and suffering. And so the assumption was, okay, you physically recovered, it's time to move on. And of course, no one says that to you, but it's there in the way people approach talking about your injury or asking you about how you're doing. And, and that was its, in its own way, it's, kind of a a whole separate hurdle that I had to figure out how to, to get past in my recovery process. Yeah. You bring up such a good point about how pain is largely invisible, whether it's, you know, you're recovering from this accident, whether you're dealing with immense grief and trauma emotionally from a situation, these are things that people cannot see. And then in, in these particular situations, you know, these are the type of situations where we often see that people get addicted to painkillers or they have kind of life altering situations that change the trajectory of their life. And it can just lead to so many different things. And I feel like we don't even have the vocabulary or the understanding yet to kind of meet people where they are with that information, you know? 
Yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, to be clear, I wouldn't have been able to talk about it or have that vocabulary before my accident either. I did the same thing to other people and just never realized it. And I think that, of course, this kind of ties into a broader conversation about invisible disability and all of these other issues that I am not an expert on. Um, I am very thankful that my injury was, I mean, it took a long time, but it was temporary. I am mostly normal today, but even that small exposure was um, clarifying in a lot of ways. There's a good chance that I'm going to have other issues later on because of my accident. I got a whole lot of metal in my foot now, mm-hmm. and there's a good chance that I'll have early onset arthritis and other complications. And so it's just coming to terms with that mentally and recognizing my own physical limitations now is, is kind of a constant effort that I need to think about. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story. And I'm so glad that you are here and you're able to share your experience and for everyone listening, if you are dealing with invisible pain, know that you are absolutely not alone And for people that, you know, are interacting with others, we just don't know what kind of invisible pain or struggles that people are dealing with both physically, emotionally, mentally. It's something that we should all be aware of and have more compassion towards. So you recently left what you thought was your dream job after feeling like you did everything right to be, quote, successful, but you were actually miserable. So I think this is something that's very common in a lot of people, especially, you know, as they kind of go through their adulting phase and check all the boxes and check all the right things. How has your definition of success changed since you left that job? And what was the catalyst for you to actually leave? Yeah, so this is something I've I've written about a decent amount and thought about a lot. Um, From a young age, I feel like I just knew that I was supposed to be successful. That's what was expected, right? And success had a very narrow definition. It was checking the boxes and following the steps that were expected. It was getting good grades in high school to get into a good college. It was picking a serious major and doing a rigorous study abroad and then getting a good job afterwards. And um, I did the steps. I checked the boxes. And I was supposed to be happy, right? That's that's the deal. That's what you're promised at the end. And I was happy in a lot of ways. It was a job that I really enjoyed. The work I was doing, the people I worked with, um, kind of the broader like thinking I was able to do. But I looked back, and it it just wasn't it wasn't enough. Because especially when I looked at what the next steps were, right, the next boxes on that checklist. I realized that none of them were going to be to make things better. It wasn't like I was putting in my time to get to a place where I would be happy. I was not going to be happy at any of these later steps. And that was that was a really hard thing to kind of acknowledge and accept because I had spent my entire kind of functioning life getting to this point, not inten- you know, not consciously, but subconsciously. And I had made so many sacrifices to get there. I mean, going back to my accident, I I was very stubborn. And I, being that type A, like wanting to control the situation, I was so determined to not let that event upset my, my plans. 
in any way. I didn't want it to affect my graduation date. I didn't want to lose. Um, I had a an internship abroad that summer, and I refused to not go, even though it was not a very handicap accessible country. I didn't want to like give up my year abroad at the London School of Economics, even though when I was there, I was miserable. And it was more that like I refused to to kind of give in and to to bend, be flexible with the situation. And so then when I got to my career that I had done all of this work to get to, and it wasn't all lining up to be happy long term, it was it was a wake up and I had to kind of figure out, okay, what, what does happiness look like? And it was probably several, several years of kind of self-reflection and I'm in therapy during this entire time and talking it through and really getting real with what I wanted and what I didn't have in my current situation and what would have to change for me to be happy. So um, very convoluted journey, but eventually I realized it I realized pretty quickly that I couldn't stay in Washington, D.C., where I was working, that it wasn't going to be a good place for me long term. I realized later that I wanted to shift kind of career wise to focus in financial planning, which I didn't go to school for, which I wasn't working in. And ultimately, I realized that I wanted to kind of shift to self-employment where I'd have the flexibility and freedom to focus on my own well-being without that external pressure of a full-time employer. Yeah, I think at some point we all have this reckoning with this idea of success because I think so many of us kind of internalize this idea of success from what we see from our family or our friends or our culture or things that we've held on to forever. So we don't want to let those go because we've invested so long and so much into this dream. How could I let this go? And, you know, at some point we have to realize whose dream am I living anyways? Whose life am I living anyways? And really it comes down to, we have to live life on our terms. And something that I have recently realized being an adult and, you know, having 36 years under my belt now, is like, I literally don't know one person who had their life turn out like they thought it was going to turn out. (laughs) I literally don't know anyone. So it's like, it's so interesting. I talk to so many people and I'm like, everyone thinks they have an idea about where their life is going, but literally no one's life turned out the way they thought. So it just reminds me that we have to kind of let go of this idea that we have so much control and be kind of flexible, as you say. And I'm very much like you. I'm very much type A. I'm very much like perfectionist. I want to have a plan. I want to know things. But in the past few years, you know, I've had so many personal life changes as well, where it's just kind of like, we have to be flexible. And and if the pandemic has taught us anything is we have far less control over things than we actually think we do. And having that flexibility and adaptability and resilience is really what's going to keep us stronger and going forward. And also kind of similar to your point, I just want to mention that sometimes you do get everything that you thought you wanted and then it changes. Like a big part of my story that I actually don't share enough and I probably should is, you know, a lot of people know that I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt, that I got my master's degree from NYU. A part that I don't share as often is that my ultimate goal was to get a PhD and become a professor. So 
my goal was to teach. My goal was to be a professor in academia. I thought that would be the coolest thing ever. And so you have to get a master's to get a PhD. So that was the end goal. But then about halfway through my program, I was like, academia is not for me. <laughs> like, I love swimming around in the ideas and the conversations and the intellectual stimulation, but it is not grounded in reality at all whatsoever. And I had been working with inner city communities before that time, like, in my mind, actually helping people, I hope. But I was like, this just seems too wildly different. And I feel like this isn't for me. And this isn't accessible to the larger public. And especially seeing that that was starting to plant the seeds of my depression around student loan debt. And it's like, I remember being in grad school, talking to my professors, I'm taking $60,000 to go to this master's program. Like, what am I going to do? What have other people done? No one could give me an answer. People were just like, oh, people figure it out or they deal with it. And I was like, no one's even making me feel better at all about this. And this is because we're paying their salaries and that's all that they care about. And, you know, that just made me so jaded. And all of this to say, like I said, sometimes you do get what you think that you wanted and then you get it and you're like, but this isn't what I thought it was going to be like at all. And so I think if we can have that openness and that transition period, and that also just very difficult and honest conversations with ourselves about actually this isn't what I wanted anymore. And I know there's that, you know, sunk cost fallacy of like, I've invested so much time into this. If I give up now, then I've wasted X amount of years of my life. And it's like, it's not a waste if you now have the opportunity to be happy doing something else. It's not a waste if you learn something, right? Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned the the sunk cost fallacy because I was 100% going to bring that up if you did it. Um, <laughs> because it's something we, we hear a lot, right? This idea, well, I've, I've already put in the time, I've done all the work to get here, so might as well keep going. And And the way that I kind of like to reframe it is like, okay, even if we kind of you know, lean into the fallacy and say, we, we sunk in all this cost, like how much more are you going to sink in? Like, you're just going to keep paying the cost to stay on this path that you know, isn't right for you. And I think that that ability to pivot is one that isn't encouraged enough and is scary. I mean, the pivot was really scary for me because I didn't feel like it was something I had seen others do. I didn't feel like it was something that a lot of people understood or supported. But at the same time, doing that was, I knew the the way to get out of this, you know, continuous sinking cost. Yeah, you bring up a very good point of, you know, when you don't see other people on the path doing what you want to do, it can be extremely isolating and extremely lonely and extremely anxiety inducing because you're like, well, I don't want any of these traditional things or this traditional way that other people want these things. And now I'm going to try something different that I haven't even quite frankly seen anyone else do the way I want to do it. So, you know, you're navigating this turmoil inside about navigating this huge life change that you don't even have a roadmap for. And that can be extremely scary. Yeah. And and for me, I, I've always been someone who's very risk averse, or that's how I see myself. 
So it took a lot to get to the point where it was like, okay, the least risky option for my own well-being is to leave my stable job. <laughs> um, and and I never, I never expected to be self-employed, to go this route. Um, I was a big fan of the idea of having a, a full-time paying job with benefits and health insurance. And so reframing the risk part of it, I think is also important because there's a whole lot of risk in staying somewhere where you know you won't be happy and that you know will kind of erode at your mental health long-term. Totally. There's a huge risk in staying at a place that's going to make you miserable and potentially kill you earlier because of stress and other factors or potentially ruin your relationship because you don't have any time freedom or you know any other factors that could happen as well. And so I'm curious, you know, what role did money play during this journey of you pivoting and transitioning your life and your career? Obviously, a very big role for so many reasons. Um, first off, I had to I had to figure out the practicality of it all, right? I, in case it isn't clear from what I've said so far, I'm not the type of person to jump blindly and trust that fate will take care of it all. Um, and and to be clear, I also like my previous employer was great. Like there was nothing kind of wrong. It was more that it wasn't the right fit for me. And so once I figured that out, you know, I wasn't in a toxic environment that I had to get out of quickly. So I knew I could kind of slowly make this transition. And obviously money played a role in that it was what I was transitioning to professionally. So I had to figure out what that looked like what kind of career I wanted. I knew that I didn't want to go to the traditional route of working at a big bank or investing firm because that wouldn't fix any of the problems that I had. All right. It wouldn't address any of the things that were making me unhappy. But I also knew that I, I wanted to do something very specific. I wanted to make sure that I was making this transition in a way that felt right to me and my own values which meant not selling, you know, products online to people who don't need them. Or, you know, I, I see a lot of people who build themselves as financial planners and um, don't really give us a good name. So I wanted to make sure that I was doing this in a way that I felt good about. And then, of course, on, on the other side, I had to make it all work financially. I wasn't going to leave my job without any sort of safety net. I needed to know that I could float for a certain amount of time because clients don't just come out of the woodwork as soon as you advertise, right? So that buildup, even when it's not in the middle of a pandemic, is something that I had to know I could, I could handle. And actually, in a weird way, the accident comes back here too. Um, I had planned on staying with my previous employer longer and working part-time in financial planning until I got to the point where I could transition responsibly to being fully self-employed. Yeah, totally. I mean, self-employment is absolutely not for the weak. It is extremely difficult and challenging. I've been self-employed um, since 2014, so almost seven years now. And it has been quite a journey. The roller coaster analogy is absolutely on point. The highs are very high. The lows are extremely low because everything feels so personal, especially because it's it's you. And, you know, you kind of mentioned building a business based on your values. And I do similar where it's like, obviously, I have to charge for certain things because I have knowledge and value but also I don't want to be gross and slimy. I also want to help people. And so like 
finding that middle of ground of, okay, how can I help people and serve people, but also, quote, charge what I'm worth and add value and have a business. And all of that stuff is so tricky. And something that I've realized just in the past year or two, even though like, it's always been there, I just have the vocabulary to clarify like, oh, this is what this is. Like, self-employment will bring up every single insecurity and issue that you've ever had in your entire life to the forefront. And it's like, I realized even just this past week, like things that have typically quote triggered me in like a romantic relationship is happening with clients or people. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, why am I feeling such levels of insecurity and unworthiness you know, when it comes to my business, when this isn't even something I typically experience, but it's like, that's what can happen. And I actually have heard from someone else, I forget whom, but they were like, running a business is like the best form of therapy because you get to see your issues front and center because everything you do is kind of reflecting back at you, like what you still need to work on. So I'm so curious, like how has self-employment affected your mental health positively and or negatively? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think it's a little different because I'm self-employed in the sense that I'm an independent contractor, but it's a bit of a hybrid. Like I don't own my firm. And that was intentional because when I went down this path, I was like, okay, well, if I can't find someone who's doing what I want to do, I'll just do it myself. Um, but it is very expensive to start up your own, you know, regulated advisory firm. And there's a whole lot of compliance hoops you have to jump through. And it was honestly terrifying even kind of thinking about it. So I was really lucky to connect with someone who who was doing what I wanted to do and was interested in kind of expanding her own business and mentoring new planners. And so connecting with her, um, Lori Atwood's the founder of the firm, meant that I had that that kind of regulatory umbrella that I could shelter under. But I still had the freedom to kind of work with clients in a way that, you know, was authentic to to me and my own values. And I had the ability to to grow that business in a way that I wanted to see it grow um, in terms of my own client work. And so I, I've really liked that that hybrid model. I think it's been a lot less stressful than if I had jumped in blind on my own to do this. Because I also made this leap. I I quit my full-time job uh, three months before the pandemic really kind of hit full scale in the U.S. So obviously that was stressful. Um, yeah. the, first, the first half of 2020 was pretty slim pickings in terms of um, bringing money in. So I was very glad I had my financial safety net. But even with that, right, even with all of the kind of like mental trauma I think we were all dealing with and are still dealing with, to be clear. Um, even with all that, I knew that it would have been worse if I hadn't left my previous job. I knew that all of, and I, I had talked to, I had talked to my therapist about this. I knew that what I was dealing with was very situational. It was like, oh yeah, I'm really stressed and anxious and, you know, having all of these apocalyptic feelings, but I feel like it's more because of what's going on right now versus my own mental health being the problem here. And so being able to kind of delineate that was really helpful. And 
I was pretty proud of myself. But I do think that, you know, it says something when it's like, okay, I took on the extra risk, the extra volatility, um, the extra stress of self-employment in whatever form, and I'm still happier. And I know that I'm happier. I know that I was happier last year than I would have been. So it's it's been a really interesting transition. I obviously wouldn't have wanted to start in the middle of a pandemic, but I figure if I can survive this, then <laughs> probably on the right path. Yes, yes. And for so many of us, it's like we should really try to remind ourselves of that. If we've survived thus far this past year, like we are much stronger than we think we are because I tell people this all the time. The fact that we can get literally anything done this past year, like I'm amazed by human beings because it's like, I kind of feel like we need a year off just to heal from all of this trauma and everything that's been going on. But we still keep showing up and doing our best and we're still here. So, I mean, that's huge. And congratulations on having the guts and the courage to go on this journey. I know self-employment is not easy. It is not for everyone, but for people who do take that risk, the rewards can be so great. Like I said, the risks and the lows can also be so great too, but you know, experiencing those highs and having that extra confidence is also really wonderful too. So congratulations. Thank you. So I know that you are also passionate about serving women as am I. I founded Lola Retreat, a women in money event, which hopefully will come back one day, I hope. I'm still kind of TBD, wondering what's going to go on with that. But I'm curious to hear from your point of view, what are the unique financial challenges that women face? Yeah, um, obviously, you know, I, I bring a certain perspective as a female financial planner. Um, we are very much the minority in this industry. So, and that's, I mean, I'm also a privileged minority and the fact that I'm a white woman, I know that it's even worse for planners of color, but I think that the more diversity we have in this industry, the more we can work with a diverse set of clients. And this is something that I was thinking about from the very beginning of this career transition, because some of my own motivation and kind of interest in financial security came about because I grew up watching my single mother make a lot of financial sacrifices to provide stability to my sister and myself. And I look back on that and I, I wish that she hadn't had to make those sacrifices. I wish that she had had the advice and support that she needed at that time. But I also know that she's not alone and that other women are also kind of struggling with this as well for so many reasons. Um, you know, we can talk about the numbers all day. If women make less, then they have less extra to invest and their invested money doesn't grow as much because it's a smaller starting amount. We also tend to live longer than men, so we're more likely to be alone in our elder years with less money than we need. Um, the math is horrible and depressing, but the piece that that I kind of focus on rather than the math and the mechanics is um, the intangible side of money, right? It's something that I focus on a lot. And I don't know if you've seen this statistic, but it's a study put out by Merrill Lynch showed that 60% of women would rather talk about their own death than talk about their finances. Oh, so like we'd rather <laughs> talk about, right. We'd rather talk about dying than talk about our money. And like, there's something there that needs to be fixed. 
And it's not our fault. It's because mm-hmm. of all of that societal baggage, right? The the money baggage that we get growing up from loved ones, either directly or indirectly, what we get from society about, you know, we need to be successful, but making too much money is something to be ashamed of. And and I have this all as well, growing up in a reserved Iowan family. Um <laughs> You want to see like reserved, passive aggressive, like go to Iowa. (laughs) I mean, they're great. I love it there. I love my family. But like, you don't talk about any of this openly. And if we're not talking about it, how can we fix this? How can we address these inequalities in our finances? So it's something that's really important to me when I work with clients as well is that like, if it's a married couple, they both need to be in the meeting. And I expect to work with both of them. And I make sure that I'm not falling into any subconscious biases myself in that, like, if the woman's the one to reach out to me, her name is first on all the emails. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's important because even some of those kind of subconscious things we do send a message and we have to combat that message as actively as possible because it is so passively there all the time. Totally. And we are living in such a unique time in history where I think women's financial issues are things that we literally have not experienced before. I mean, we have no experience with this. We don't have experience with many more swaths of women becoming breadwinners or single moms or single moms in the sense that they may choose to have a husband or not, or get artificially inseminated, or they want to adopt on their own, or, you know, people getting divorced at higher rates. I mean, women weren't even allowed to get a credit card, I think, until 1974. So we're literally dealing with so many new financial issues just in the past, you know, half a century that have not historically been here. And I think, it's important for us to kind of, as you say, like go through and, and check out our biases and be really clear with like what the situation is right now and how we can kind of bring more equity to, you know, finances when it comes to women and money, because we are living longer. We do earn less. That means we have less saved and less invested. And we're also doing a lot more of the domestic labor, the childcare labor um, the cleaning and, and all of these things that, you know, are just more jobs basically in a, in a different kind of way. And so it's so important that we're all aware of this and talking about it and breaking down the barriers so that we can all navigate this together because I don't think anyone has all of the answers because this is a situation that we haven't even been in until now. And so we're figuring out the answers as we go, but as you said, you know, we're not going to be able to fix things if we don't talk about it. Yeah. And I mean, just just to go back, one of the other pieces of this equation that I think a lot of people overlook is quite a few of us, you know, Gen X, millennials, we have parents who are undersaved for retirement. And traditionally, female children are the ones who are providing more of the caregiving to their parents as well as their own children. 
And that's actual caregiving, but it's also financial support. And so not only do we have to be worrying about our own financial security, we have to worry about supporting our parents financially if they aren't well set up. We have to worry about, you know, supporting our children financially in whatever way we want to do that. And so it just gets very messy very quickly. And that messiness is something that I think, you know, traditionally financial planning hasn't been willing to grapple with in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so important that we look at the sandwich generation, you know, people who are taking care of aging parents and also young children. I mean, that's a huge financial and emotional burden that, of course, is going to affect your finances in a huge way, as well as how you can show up with work, how you can take care of yourself. I mean, it's it's so much. And thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that. So my last question is, I'm curious, what mental health and wealth tips do you have for our listeners? Yeah, one of the the ones that I think is really critical and that isn't kind of advice you see in a lot of places is that there should be this aspect of intentionality to your finances. And this goes back to kind of my my story in terms of following the the prescribed path, like I was on autopilot because it was just what you were supposed to do. So I recommend that listeners look at their own finances and say, is my money going to what I value? And if that's too, you know, hard of a question, step back and say, what do I value? Where do I want my money to be going? What do I want my life to look like? Even if it is different from what you've been told it should look like or what you've expected it to look like. Um, Taking that step back is really critical because I see that with my work with clients from all kinds of financial situations, whether they have money to burn or they're really struggling to get by. It's like, what do we want this money to be doing for you? Because money is never the end goal, right? I mean, maybe you have a Scrooge McDuck fantasy, like pile of coins bath, but like money is typically not the end goal, right? It's what the money could get us. Once we've gotten to the level where we have our basic needs covered, you know, what's next? Because if it's just accumulating wealth for the sake of being rich, we probably need to think a little deeper there and focus more on kind of the mental health aspect of it, which, as I mentioned, is very tied in with finances. So if that's something that that listeners haven't like stopped to think about, um, that's the very first place that I would start. Love that. That's so important. Yes, you want your money working for you because you do not trade the majority of your hours to work to earn a living to then just you know, pay bills. I mean, I know that's the way it can seem given our society, but you can and have, you know, you can have access to more and it's just about planning and being mindful and intentional about where you want things to go and and also how you want to feel, you know? Yes, definitely. And I think money affects so much of our lives that we can't afford to ignore it or to ignore some of these thornier questions around it. Totally, totally. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This was fantastic. Where can people find you? Yeah, so um, I, you know, my my firm puts out a lot of educational content around finances on Instagram. We're at Fearless Finance by AFP. But I also post um, personally on Instagram. My blog is Owning the Stars. I talk quite a bit about some of these more personal and mental health themed aspects there. 
Um, we're on Clubhouse now because apparently that's what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> um, the the other thing that I care a lot about is making financial planning more accessible to people because traditionally it's been an industry that is only available to people who are already wealthy, right? They charge a percent of your assets. So if you don't have assets, they don't want to work with you. And so I... I think that the first step to doing that is to, you know, making that more accessible is offering hourly planning. Um, I charge a flat fee. I don't sell any products. But the next step and something that I am very excited to have kind of developed in 2020 is small group planning. So if if any listeners are kind of like, okay, I can't afford this hourly rate. I'm not sure where to start. I just need the basics. We now offer this small group format where you're with a supportive community, you're still being led by a fiduciary professional, and you get the advice you need. So I, I'm really excited about that. I think it's going to make this information even more accessible than you know we've already worked to make it. And if people are interested in kind of learning more about that, they can check out our website, which is atwoodfinancial.com. Awesome. Love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing all of your tips. Thanks for having me, Melanie. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a Mental Health and Wealth Hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. The best part, it is free. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.